Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 11 of DisasterCast. Newly subtitled as the System Safety Engineering and Management Podcast, just because it shows up much higher in the search rankings than a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. Today's episode is called Tick the Box. I'm going to start today by applying the idea of seven universal plots to stories about accidents. Then we'll move on to our accident of the day, British Midlands Flight BD-92. Finally, I've got some positive things to say about the use of checklists in safety. An author called Christopher Booker once suggested that all of literature can be boiled down to seven basic plots. These are Overcoming the Monster, Rags to Riches, The Quest, Voyage and Return, Comedy, Tragedy, and Rebirth. Each of these plots has certain essential characters and stages. For example, the Overcoming the Monster plot requires as a bare minimum a hero and a monster, with optionally some companions and some henchmen. There are stages of anticipation, a journey, frustration, and a final conflict. I'm not aware that anyone has ever tried to do the same thing for accident reports, so I thought I'd take a stab at it. I don't have the full set of seven plots yet. I'll explain four here, but I'm relying on listeners to fill in some of the gaps. If you'd like to send in suggestions by email, or even send an audio file, I'll include it in a future episode. Plot number one, the fatal error. The fatal error plot starts with a simple mechanical failure. It may be a stuck valve, or an engine failure, or a software error. This simple failure puts the operators into a difficult, but not impossible situation. They are struggling to diagnose the problem at the same time as they try to cope with the consequences. They make some simple mistakes, and the whole situation gets a lot worse. That's basically what happened at Three Mile Island. The operators, misdiagnosing the problem, spent several hours making things worse. Eventually they figured out what is going wrong, and things get better again. British Midlands Flight BD-92, which we'll discuss today, follows much the same pattern, but with a worse outcome. As we explore the fatal error, we always find out that the apparently simple mistakes have complex causes. The design of the equipment, the workload, training and competency, fatigue management, all have a role to play in what happened. Plot number two, the desperate struggle. The desperate struggle is told as a series of flashbacks. At face value, we have a single massively damaging event which kills or injures some people, but leaves everyone else alive in an increasingly dangerous situation. They struggle to contain the disaster, or even just to escape, as things get worse and worse. Through the flashbacks we realise that their situation wasn't inevitable. It was created by decisions made long before the accident. Each blocked escape route, 
Each piece of vital equipment that either can't be found or falls into their hands at exactly the right moment was positioned beforehand by careless or thoughtful decisions. The desperate struggle can be seen in Piper Alpha and Fukushima, but also in some near disasters such as the miracle on the Hudson or some bad situations that could have been much worse, such as the 9-11 attack on the Pentagon. Plot number three. The Niggling Doubt In the Niggling Doubt, there are early warning signs of an impending disaster. These may be completely dismissed by everyone, but usually there are one or two lone voices trying to draw attention to the danger. Often those with authority to do something about the problem insist that it has already been properly considered or taken care of. Eventually, something does go wrong and the authorities talk about how it was a freak accident, or a combination of unfortunate circumstances, and totally unforeseeable. The lone voices finally get a chance to be heard. Usually they can resist saying, I told you so. More often they are quoted as, this accident was preventable, or this wasn't an accident. Challenger and Columbia both follow the niggling doubt plot. In the ironic, depressing version of this plot, the lone voices are the ones killed in the accident. The Westgate Bridge Collapse arguably follows this pattern. Plot number four, the mystery. The mystery is the simplest accident plot. Risk assessment is performed poorly or not at all, and there are serious hazards which have never been mitigated. Eventually, one or more of these hazards is realised, and everything seems to go wrong at once. The mystery is how we escaped so long without a disaster, or how anyone lets this happen in a modern society. Deepwater Horizon is the most recent instance that springs to mind. Bhopal is another good example. It was the crash of British Midlands flight BD-92, also called the Kegworth accident, that got me thinking about repeating accident plots. The BBC documentary about Kegworth, Fatal Error, provides the name that I've given to this plot. A mechanical failure creates a difficult but survivable situation. Humans misunderstand what's going on and make a few basic errors that makes things much worse. Our story starts with a fan blade in the left side engine of a Boeing 737. Keep that in mind. This is a two-engine plane, and it is the left-side engine with the fan blade failure. The fan blade ripped through the engine and caused a series of compressor stalls. The whole plane started shuddering, and smoke and fumes started to come into the flight deck. Based on his incorrect knowledge of the air conditioning design on the 737, the pilot suspected that the right-hand engine was on fire. This was confirmed by the first officer, who when asked for his diagnosis said, quote, it's, the le- it's the right one. The pilots throttled back the right-hand engine. This caused the vibrations to slow down and stop, confirming their impression that the right-hand engine was the one that had suffered a failure. The smell of smoke also appeared to be clearing. There then followed a confused minute 
while the pilots were communicating with air traffic control to report the emergency and to arrange an emergency landing. They were also monitoring the situation with the engine, trying to decide whether to shut it down completely or keep it running under reduced power. During this time, the first officer announced that he was going to start the engine failure and shutdown checklist. This checklist was paused multiple times as the pilots communicated with air traffic control at two airports and their own airline operations staff and planned for an emergency landing. Eventually, without ever completing the checklist, they completely shut down the right side engine. By this stage, the passengers were understandably becoming rather agitated by the smoke and vibrations. The pilots announced to the passengers that they had shut down the failed right side engine and were diverting for a landing. This announcement was somewhat surprising to those passengers who'd seen flames coming from the left-hand engine, but no one said anything to the pilots. As the plane came into land at East Midlands Airport, additional demand was placed on the remaining engine. This demand caused further failure of the already damaged components, including starting another fire and loss of power from the engine. The crew desperately tried to restart the working right-hand engine, but they were unsuccessful. The plane crashed into a field at a little over 100 knots, and then hit the side of the M1 motorway, suffering a lot of damage from the physical impacts. At this point, for the first time that night, things started to go right for those passengers, at least the ones who survived the initial impact. 737s are designed not to crash, but they are also designed to be safe if they do crash. One of the important features is that the engines and landing gear break away in a fashion that doesn't rupture the wing fuel tanks, and this worked more or less as it should. Even though all but 14 of the passengers and crew were trapped in the wreckage, the only fire was the already burning left side engine, which was put out quickly when emergency services arrived promptly on the scene. It's worth going through the list of factors that led to the pilots shutting down the wrong engine. Factor number one, the speed with which they made the decision. Pilot training for the 737, and for the airline, stressed taking time to properly evaluate a situation before taking precipitate action. This was true not only for the generic training, but also specifically for the engine failure procedures. Making a decision quickly meant that they didn't have time to consider or interpret all of the information available to them. Having made a decision, it was cognitively difficult to unmake that decision. Factor number two. The symptoms got better in response to their actions. Confirmation bias led them to interpret this as evidence that their decision was the correct one. In fact, probably simply disconnecting the autothrottle was what halted the series of stalls, which was what the pilots could feel. There was actually still vibration there, but it was evident only on the sensors, not as a physical sensation. So the physical feedback they got led them to think they'd done the right thing. Factor number three the design of the electronic instrument display. The main concern here was that the electronic indicators were very good for showing current values, 
but made it quite hard to spot changes in values. The display had been certified based on its reliability, but no one had done a detailed assessment of whether pilots performed better or worse when using the display. A good display isn't just reliable, it also helps the pilots be reliable. In particular, what would have been really useful was to have a warning light that drew attention when an engine was showing maximum vibration, and there was no such warning light. Factor number four, the engine vibration monitors themselves. These are the instruments that clearly said that it was the left-hand engine that was vibrating. The trouble here, though, is that historically, engine vibration sensors had been highly unreliable. To quote the FAA, vibration detectors are not as reliable as the engines they monitor. The trouble is that a good vibration sensor needs to take into account normal vibration and movement, such as from a runway, and it needs to exaggerate abnormal movement. This is a difficult engineering problem. It had been fixed by the time of the 737-400. An experienced pilot, such as the captain of BD-92, would have learned to fly an aircraft where the vibration sensors were unreliable. He was accustomed to not scanning or taking into account those particular instruments. Factor number five, failure to follow the checklist. As it happens, reducing the throttle on the wrong engine would not have been enough to cause the accident. The accident was made almost inevitable by the second decision, the one to fully shut down the engine. To understand the significance of the checklist here, imagine the situation for the pilots. The plane is shaking, and there's a smell of burning. This created stress, and people under stress search for certainty. There was a lot of radio chatter, and planning tasks associated with landing at an airfield not originally intended as a possible diversion. This created workload and interruptions, making methodical reflection and checking information difficult. Most simulated emergencies involve an engine shutdown, so there was a certain amount of following practiced patterns of behaviour. In these circumstances, a checklist is a safety line. It provides a way to systematically focus on the important information, the important decisions and the important steps that must be carried out. Factor number six, not understanding the aircraft systems. The checklist was necessary, but by itself it may not have been enough. Pilots need to be able to understand the situation well enough to choose the right procedure and know when the procedure applies or doesn't apply. In this particular case, for example, there was a vibration procedure and an engine on fire procedure, but no procedure that explicitly mentioned what to do if you have both at once. A better technical understanding of the plane could have led the pilots to recognise that disconnecting the autothrottle was what had reduced the feeling of vibration. A better technical understanding could have led them to trust the vibration sensors as a source of information. A better technical understanding 
would have let them know that smoke in the air conditioning could happen from either engine, not just from the right-hand side engine. As a final note, the accident report doesn't blame the passengers or the cabin crew for not telling the pilots which engine was on fire. Generally speaking, it's better to trust that the pilots know what they're doing rather than interrupt them in the middle of an emergency landing just to check. As usual, I've put a link to the accident report in the show notes. In this instance, though, I'd recommend one of the popular accounts such as the BBC documentary rather than the official report. It's big on the technical analysis of the physical systems, but it's not so great at clearly setting out the factors at play in causing the accident. If you're particularly interested, for example, in the design of fan blades, aircraft seats, and overhead lockers, though, go for it. So from the role of checklists in Kegworth to the role of checklists more generally. It's a common criticism, and it's very easy to glibly dismiss safety as a tick-the-box exercise. Prompted by some listener suggestions, though, I thought it was time to say a few words in praise of ticking the box. Humans are very unreliable system components. That's true whether your system is a vehicle or an engineering design organisation. Sometimes the solution is to get rid of the human. Sometimes we want to keep the human because of the things that humans are uniquely good at. A simplistic example of this is a rule of thumb called FITS LIST, also known by the acronym MABA-MABA. With all the gender equity awareness of the 1970s, FITS provides a list of things that man is better at and things that machines are better at. It's been extensively criticised, but the fundamental premise is still reasonably true. If the job needs a robot to do it well, then get yourself a robot. Don't try to turn a human into a robot. Unfortunately, Just about the one thing that everyone can agree humans are unquestionably better at than robots. It's failing to follow instructions. A lot of the time, this is actually a good thing. As anyone who's studied the role of requirements errors in software engineering accidents knows, humans aren't that great at writing instructions either. If you can't write good instructions then you really don't want a machine that blindly follows those instructions. Hence the advantage of putting a human in the loop. There are a number of things that humans do badly at on their own, but do much better at with a bit of assistance. Here are a few examples. Post-completion errors are things that we forget to do because they're secondary to the main task that we're trying to accomplish. Leaving an original in the photocopier is a good example. You don't need to remove the original to finish making the copies, so it's a step we often forget. Washing up after a meal is another one. It's a secondary task that comes after the main mission of eating has been accomplished. These seem like trivial examples, until you think about the four tiny pieces of plastic which once almost brought down a passenger jet, 
or the piece of wire left in place that caused a train wreck. A surgeon leaving a piece of equipment inside a patient is arguably also a type of post-completion error. Lapses or omissions are things we skip over when performing a set of steps. Often this happens because we're interrupted or distracted, but there's also an underlying rate of unexplained errors of this type. Nothing specifically causes the lapse, we just aren't perfect. Confirmation bias is where we reach a conclusion before we have full information, and then we interpret the rest of the information in the light of that conclusion, rather than on its own merits. Confirmation bias can be made worse by congruence bias, where we actively seek out information to try to confirm our initial interpretation, rather than testing out alternate hypotheses. Confabulation is where we remember something that didn't actually happen. With procedures, we sometimes conflate planning or considering an action with actually carrying that action out. We remember doing it, but what we have actually done is thought about doing it. Finally, and I don't have a formal name for this one, humans just aren't great at counting things. Unless we have a written record or specific training, most of us can't even count two things at once, let alone keep an accurate count when we are interrupted. You can probably imagine situations where all of these mistakes can lead to dangerous outcomes. Whether we're dealing with an in-flight emergency, repairing an engine, or inspecting a row of rivets, it's obvious that human reliability can be important. We can extend beyond these obvious examples, though, to less direct activities. Performing safety analysis and reviewing safety analysis are also situations where human error is both likely and dangerous. Enter the checklist. A well-designed checklist is nothing more and nothing less than a protection mechanism against certain types of human error. It's a way of remembering the important parts of a task, making sure that each part of a task is finished, and a way of checking afterwards that everything has been done. Checklists have long been used in aviation, and they are starting to be copied in less traditional high-integrity environments, such as hospitals. The phrase, tick-the-box safety culture, still fills us with dread, though. Why? It's nothing inherent in the checklists themselves, but in the attitude or in the way they're used. Let's run through some of the concerns using aviation as an example. To start with, there is no checklist for flying a plane. There are a lot of checklists for a lot of situations pilots might encounter. Part of being a good pilot means knowing what checklists are available, when they are relevant, and how to apply them. No one gives a person off the street a checklist and expects them to be able to fly a plane. The checklists are part of an integrated package of both education and training. There is a knowledge component which has nothing to do with the checklists. Then there is practical training, both with and without procedures. Then there's training in the checklists themselves 
and how to use them properly and at the right time. There's even generic training called crew or cockpit resource management in how to work together with other people to complete tasks. The checklists are not the full story. Simply doing what's on the checklist is a protection against missing a step. It isn't a guarantee that you've done the step competently, diligently, and in full awareness of the context and consequences. The checklists aren't a source of divine authority either. I won't go so far as to suggest who is or thinks they might deserve this status on an aircraft, but it sure isn't the checklists. Everyone involved knows the checklists aren't perfect, and everyone is used to them being regularly improved or updated as new information, equipment or procedures become available. When it comes to engineering review, the available evidence suggests that checklists help, rather than hinder, good reviewers. Providing a competent engineer with a checklist or a template helps them to spot errors or omissions that are on the checklist, but it doesn't actually reduce their ability to find other problems. A slight caveat here, in that the evidence isn't particularly strong. There's hardly any direct research into review of safety deliverables. Most of the work on review is tangential, looking at things like software reviews. So in summary, the problem with tick-the-box safety culture is all about the culture, not the tick boxes. Checklists are a useful tool, and arguably a necessary part of designing good training and procedures. The fact that they're sometimes not used properly is a reason to think about how and why they're used, not a reason to throw away the checklists. That's just about it for this episode of DisasterCast. As usual, I've put some links in the show notes on disastercast.co.uk. Thanks everyone for the emails and tweets. Today's episode comes to you thanks to a biomedical engineer called Randy, whose kind words pushed me over the line to finish writing and recording. Our next episode will focus on medical devices. I'd love to include some audio from someone specialising in the field, so if any listeners would like to be interviewed, or even to record an eight-minute segment yourself, please do drop me a line. DisasterCast is made possible thanks to prize money from I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here. The theme music is from a disaster anthem by Eden Prayer.